Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. In the U.S., there are over 43 million unpaid family caregivers Many of those caregivers rely on members of the direct care workforce to fill in when they can't provide care for a family member or friend because they have to go to a job or they have other responsibilities. So who makes up this paid workforce that millions of Americans rely on? What are their needs? And how do direct care workers fit into America's growing caregiver crisis? Here to talk about all this and more is my guest, Jody M. Sturgeon. Jody is the president of PHI, also known as the Paraprofessional Healthcare Institute, which is widely recognized as America's leading authority on the direct care workforce. Jody joins us today from New York City. Jody Sturgeon, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about PHI for folks who don't know. How old is the organization? What is its mission? And how did you come to the organization? PHI is a little over 25 years old, and we were founded with a quality care, quality jobs mission. Uh, we believe strongly that caring, committed relationships between direct care workers and their clients are at the heart of quality care, and that those relationships work best when direct care workers receive high-quality training, living wages, and respect for the central role that they play. Mm-hmm. So we work uh, both on the ground with providers uh, and in uh, research-based policy and advocacy to try and improve uh, the quality of the direct care job, thereby improving the quality of the care as well. Yeah, and you cover so much ground, which is really wonderful. And how did you come to the organization? So I have been around PHI since its early days. I uh, am a a close friend of the founder, Stephen Dawson. So in the early days, I sort of volunteered my time with PHI. My background is in uh, community economic development more broadly, uh, and I basically knew Stephen through that work and ultimately came here about 12 years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, I started as the chief financial and chief operating officer and then took over as president a little over four years ago. Okay. Okay, and so for folks who don't know, can you define direct care workers and what each type of worker does? Sure. So the direct care workforce is made up of personal care assistants, home health aides, and nursing assistants. And so the first two, personal care aides and home health aides, work primarily in home and community-based services. Mm -hmm. Personal care aides provide assistance with activities of daily living. Uh, and home health aides uh, do as well, but they have additional clinical training. And then nursing assistants are typically in skilled nursing facilities, so nursing homes, assisted livings, those kinds of things. Okay, okay. Now, as I understand it, PHI just released its federal policy priorities for 2017. Can you speak to the policy areas that PHI is calling on the Trump administration to address? Certainly. So there are uh, essentially five areas in which we've uh, issued recommendations um, and obviously all contributing to job quality and actually the relationship with family caregivers. But uh, to start, we talk about wages and benefits uh, and the importance of, frankly, implementing the Fair Labor Standards Act companionship exemption change that took place 
we are concerned that the implementation of that will not be a priority of the administration, but also obviously advocating for a living wage and the earned income tax credit as well. Uh huh. So I'm in Florida, and the direct care workforce is nationally a low-wage workforce. But looking at the state of Florida, I saw on your website the 2015 statistics are the latest for the state of Florida. In the state of Florida, we have 127,000 direct care workers. The majority of them are nursing assistants, followed by home health aides and personal care aides. The nursing assistant median wage is $11.63 an hour. Home health aides uh, median wage is $10.62 an hour. Personal care aides, the median wage there is a little over $10 an hour. I can give an example in my own family. We have a caregiver who is employed by an agency. She does not have health insurance. She takes home $10 an hour, and we're paying the agency $16 an hour. So where does the rest of the money go between what the worker gets and what the agency charges? So I think I'll start by making the distinction between sort of private pay market Mm -hmm. and the publicly funded space. And so Uh, In the private pay market, it is uh, definitely determined by agencies in states, and the degree to which those agencies invest in their workforce varies quite greatly. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, in the for-profit world, in the large franchises, there is an emphasis on profitability. In the publicly funded space, it varies across states as well, uh, and even within states, depending on the different types of programs that are actually paying for the services, so different waiver programs in different states. Uh, In a state like New York, uh, there's a a bit of a um, uniqueness where there is a wage floor in New York for uh, direct care workers. Um, And there are a couple other states where there's similar pieces. But the amount that is invested in the workforce in the publicly funded space and the amount that is kept for profit is very different than in the private pay space. The Medicaid dollars are such, and this is only going to get worse, as you know, Mm -hmm. the Medicaid dollars are such that there is not enough money in the system to cover the amount of care. And that's, that's only going to get worse as well. I mean, as you know, you know, obviously everyone is well aware of the aging of, of America and the, and the baby boomers and the 10,000 people turning 65 every day. But there's also actually a shortage of the typical caregivers. So the primary labor pool for this workforce are women between the ages of 25 and 64. Mm-hmm. And the number of women entering the workforce is going to remain flat over the next decade. So the, co- the combination of the two makes this much more of a crisis than ever before. And I would add, actually, that in the family caregiver space, families are smaller. There are fewer family caregivers. Families are smaller, and they're geographically dispersed. Uh So the combination of of the three variables has really brought this to a crisis. And it seems like people are really approaching it in a real patchwork way, depending on where you're entering the space. Um, Family caregivers are usually so desperate for help that they'll do whatever they can to get help. In my own family, since my mom moved to Florida in 2015 and broke her hip and now lives with my younger sister and uh, my younger sister works, we have a team of three caregivers. One is private pay and two we're paying directly. We're circumventing the agency. (laughs) So my sense is that the patchwork nature of this whole conversation does not help in terms of finding solutions. What's your take on that? No, I think I think that's absolutely true. I think the the way that we here at PHI are thinking about our work in the next couple of years, five years, the more we can actually maximize or leverage the role of the direct care worker, 
uh, the more we can sort of start to break down some of this patchwork. For example, I'm sure that you are having this, you could be having this experience as well. I know people who do, you know, someone that you hire directly, you can actually have them do whatever tasks you would like them to do. Mm -hmm. Agency employed workers, be they personal care aides or home health aides, have a wide variation of restrictions on what they can and can't do. For example, give medication. And that varies by state, right? That absolutely, absolutely varies by state. And it's part of, you know, you, you, you mentioned our federal policy report, which did get released today. So there the five areas, we talked a little about wages and benefits, but we also have rec- a set of recommendations around training and advanced roles, uh, including what we here call specialty training, but it's training targeted at chronic conditions and, and uh, other areas that we see the sort of increased acuity of clients in the home, things like administering medication in states where we can. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then sort of the data collection and quality issues. We know anecdotally, mostly anecdotally, mm-hmm. uh, about shortages. It's the first thing that everyone says, but there's not enough data or support of research to really do both of the things that I was just talking about. Understand the vacancies, understand the shortage in real terms, but also prove that you can actually have direct care workers do more and have positive results both for the worker who sees advancement opportunities and sees you know that they're being valued mm-hmm. and for the client who's receiving better care. Mm-hmm. I'd love to know if you have personal experience of direct care workers in your own family. <laughs> I do. Um, <laughs> so, so my nana, my very feisty little French-Canadian nana, uh, is 93 years old, and she, she developed dementia about three years ago. And she absolutely positively refused to let anyone in her house for the first couple of years. And it was really amazing to see someone work with her, a direct care worker work with her mm-hmm. around that and understand that that's what was happening for her and be able to work through that. So it's, it's a job that is very hard to explain unless you've seen, and I'm sure you feel this way too now that you've experienced it, right? Yeah. You see a caregiver with someone you love, and it's a very different thing. I mean, I have spent a long, you know, most of my professional life working for low-income workers or around low-income housing or other things, and, and I feel very strongly about it, but it takes on a whole new level when you see a direct care worker working with someone you love. And have you had to provide care yourself for your Nana? Uh, Yeah, I mean, in a limited way. I am from New England. She is in New England. But she is now actually, she has uh, moved into an assisted living facility. Okay. She's no longer receiving care at home. She's in a dementia-specialized assisted living facility. Mm -hmm. I think family members have a wide degree of expectations when it comes to paid caregivers. Can you give an example, sort of a, a best and worst case scenario, where you've, you've you know you've you've had a client deal with a family member who just doesn't who just they just doesn't doesn't work well with or vice versa, and why? What are some of the things that get in the way? So it's definitely a common issue, and it's you know part of the the range of interventions that PHI brings to providers is you know how to have direct care workers work with family caregivers. You know, the core of everything in most of our work is communication and communication skills. So PHI's coaching approach is grounded in these communication skills. And so we do basically use that in helping family caregivers and paid caregivers communicate and and work through things. But there are times where you cannot. And it's often the family has an expectation, as you said, about what the direct care worker is supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And the direct care worker has a care plan that the agency has directed them to do, mm-hmm. and they're not always aligned. 
the, everything from doing the family laundry. I mean, to be honest, walking uh-huh. the dog. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. But you know what we have seen, and and you know again, sort of going back to my theme about you know maximizing and leveraging the role of the direct care worker and and creating these advanced roles that don't require necessarily additional clinical training, mm-hmm. but more what we would call it an enhanced observe, record, and report which is really what a direct care worker does, but also these enhanced communication skills. We have seen basically what we call senior aides. They've received additional training. They have very often played a key role in working through issues between family caregivers and direct care workers. Hmm. So they will go out into the home uh, and support the worker and the family caregiver in the sort of conflict and resolution space. You mean like a geriatric care manager of sorts? No, these are actually direct care workers. They are seasoned direct care workers that we have provided additional training to, another probably about 120 to 50 hours of training, again, in sort of enhanced core communication skills in some specialty topics I was speaking to earlier, mm-hmm. diabetes, Alzheimer's, dementia, mm-hmm. um, but also very often it is really about the communication. Yeah. Uh, and so they will act as a, as a coach to the direct care worker and, and sometimes to the family caregiver. Mm-hmm. Well, you're really lucky when you get a worker who you click with and they form a long-term bond with a family member. I think it's really rare. What are some of the factors that cause workers to bounce around besides low wages? Sure. So I, I think it's, it's low wages. It's also part-time hours. So uh-huh. even in the case of low wages, the inconsistent hours, the workers feel inadequately prepared. Uh, they don't feel like they have training. We hear that time and again, and particularly now as the acuity of, of clients in the home is getting higher they're sicker, they have more complex conditions, so mm-hmm. workers get overwhelmed and don't feel prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's where a senior aide can actually be helpful sometimes. But again, it's mostly poor supervision, inadequate training, and basically the sense that there isn't an opportunity for advancement, in addition, obviously, to wages and benefits. Mm-hmm. So besides the communication skills that you mentioned earlier, can you speak a little bit more about what sort of tools PHI provides to direct care workers? Sure. So we developed both entry-level training, so the training required for people to enter this workforce. The training is specifically designed to meet the standard demographic of the worker, often lower literacy, little education, very often in urban areas, an immigrant population. So the curriculum is designed to meet them where they are. And that is just on the on the entry-level side. We also uh, have a series of Uh, incumbent worker trainings that include things like this enhance, observe, record, report, Mm -hmm. uh, and in chronic conditions, cultural competency, uh, false prevention, elder abuse prevention, those types of things. Yeah. Uh, So that's the sort of very clear and direct piece of work that we do. But we also actually work with agencies on uh, recruitment and retention strategies and a recruitment process for how you select who is the best person for this job. Mm Mm-hmm. And what kind of workforce supports do you put in place to help them be successful at staying in this job? Mm-hmm. So the, it's a very low barrier to entry job, yeah. which is a positive, but it means that these folks are dealing with multiple things. Case management type support, often housed in an HR department in a typical agency, but, but making sure that folks don't lose their public benefits that, that they have coming in and are not making enough to, to not have the subsidized dollars coming in. So we have an entire sort of recruitment and retention set of strategies that we can bring to a provider. We also have 
basically our coaching and consulting services are rooted in PHI's coaching approach to communication, to supervision, to building teams. And so we do a range of organizational development work with the staff of an entire organization, all the way from executive leaders to direct care workers, because we believe that if to really create a true quality job, you can't just work with the direct care worker. You, you need to create a quality organization that is actually invested in that workforce. Mm-hmm. So. Do these people come to you, these providers, or are you proactively sort of seeking these providers out? And how embracing are they of your strategies? So it's a mix. We, we really do both. And they're very embracing of our strategies. You know, it stops when they can't pay for it. Part of the challenge is even the what we would call high-road employers who want to invest in their workforce, who mm-hmm. understand the benefit, are often not able to, particularly in the publicly funded space. We do not work very often with private pay. Not never, mm-hmm. but, but most are in the public space. Part of what makes PHI unique and I believe successful is that we have both this practice approach that we were just talking about, so on the ground approach, but then also our policy and advocacy work. And, and those two inform each other. You know, we're able to talk to stakeholders and policymakers in a way that's different because we do the work with the providers. We're hearing directly from them. We understand what it means for them to try and do some of these job quality initiatives. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised to read in one of your issue reports that, and again, I'm in Florida, so here we go, that 39% of the direct care workforce in Florida has employee-covered health insurance, as opposed to 70% of the U.S. civilian workforce who have employee-covered health insurance. I mean, that's a staggering gap. Again, I have hired people through an agency who have told me, oh, no, I don't have health insurance. That's shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, the irony is just just horrific, isn't it, right? The people who are (laughs) our families don't have health insurance themselves, but not to mention it's actually one of the most dangerous jobs in terms of just pure injury percentage. Right. Um, And so, you know, and I think this speaks to the concerns that we have with repeal of the Affordable Care Act. It's, It's still deplorable today. It was even worse before the Affordable Care Act. And mm-hmm. so, although you know, the notion of, of it being repealed entirely would be a long-term prospect, but mm-hmm. I still think these types of things will get chipped away at. And so I, the other problem is that the upside of the Affordable Care Act is more people got coverage. The downside is, is it incentivized part-time work more for those agencies that don't want to invest in their workers. So, you know, we, we will continue to work uh, on the issue of health coverage. And it's a little bit of just reacting to what's you know, it seems like there's new information coming out of Washington pretty much every other day mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the changes. This morning, there is actually there is an announcement this morning that they've made another change to the to the repeal, trying to actually um, basically try and influence some Republican folks who are on the fence uh-huh. out of vote. Um, so uh-huh. they targeted certain states, and um, and it would be you know it, it could basically put more control into the states, uh-huh. um, which you know is it's hard to know whether that's good or bad. Right, right. I interviewed somebody, a social justice activist in Georgia uh, a while back. She has lupus, and she's working with an organization called 9 to 5, which I'll bet you're familiar with, Winning Justice for Working yeah. Women. And they're working to get the Family Care Act passed in Georgia, and this bill would allow people to use earned sick time to care for a loved one. And there's overwhelming support in the state for this bill. Workers already have these paid days off for themselves But businesses are opposed, and they've been trying to get this passed for four years. If we can't get this done, what is the fate of paid leave? 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it is, it is in part one of the uh, pieces of our wages and benefits recommendation in the federal policy report, you know, to have a federal paid leave. I will almost guarantee that it's sort of fully private pay folks for, of the direct care workforce would be opposed as well. I think that just like everything else, to be frank, I think it's like minimum wage itself. I think it's a, a state by state, you know, point to a state that was able to do this in a certain way kind of process, which is, you know, is the plotting of policy work. Right. right. So when you're in Washington, who do you meet with? Can you give us a flavor of what your visits are like? So we will meet with like-minded organizations working on issues as well as make the rounds on the Hill, talk with staffers. We have a federal policy person who is in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, he is pretty much on the Hill every other week. It's largely a lot of staff work with a couple of champions that we identify mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of leverage. In your article for Next Avenue, Finding Solutions to the Growing Caregiver Crisis, You wrote, as more Americans face these challenges, i.e. caregiving challenges, we need to create a social infrastructure that will help families manage their caregiving responsibilities. What does that infrastructure look like, and what does it include? It's absolutely grounded in this direct care workforce. I mean, they are actually the infrastructure, at least to start with. So investing in this workforce and investing in a way that actually addresses not just wages and benefits, but the entire sort of range of barriers that they face to stay in the job. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, have them be adequately trained. And, and you know, they can contribute more to the system, absolutely. Um, and I believe they can contribute to cost savings within the system. Mm-hmm. Um, but have that money come back into that, that workforce. I think that there is a, a, a way in which, and I know we here at PHI are talking about this and looking at how to do this, but I think there's a way in which we can strengthen the interconnectedness of family caregivers and paid caregivers and in, in cases where there are um, other providers in the mix as well. So not so siloed in the, in the sort of long-term services and support. How mm-hmm. do we also look at the intersection of other areas within the field uh, and how there's some overlap, I would say, in many of the roles if you look across, for example, what role can a direct care worker play when a client's coming out of the hospital? Mm-hmm. Have them involved in the conversation. Have them be a part of or at least have someone be a liaison to their interdisciplinary care team, whatever it's called and wherever your state is. You know, the, the direct care worker actually knows, frankly, usually besides the family caregiver, the direct care worker knows more than anyone else in the system. Eight out of ten hours of paid care is by a direct care worker. So, mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot of ways in which sort of stepping back and looking at the interconnectedness of the system overall or how it should look um, versus how it looks now mm-hmm. and who plays what role in that. It's critical. Speaking of interconnectedness, I think people don't really think about this a lot, but immigration reform seems to be very closely connected with the direct care workforce and who are going to fill these jobs. So many of the folks that do this kind of work are people of color. English is not necessarily their first language. And it will be really interesting to see who's going to, I mean, if immigration, how immigration reform impacts the direct care workforce. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, how we speak to it in our policy recommendations that in the report we released is, is talking about sort of linguistically and culturally competent staff. That is only going to happen if uh, immigration reform is such that it doesn't impact the availability of these workers. So mm-hmm. I think looking at, and that's a, a diff- that's a different type of social infrastructure, I guess I would say, right? Yeah. The path to immigration, the path to citizenship needs to be reformed. That's what needs to be reformed. <laughs> 
and also thinking about in terms of, of infrastructure, a, a, a training system and, a, and an employment system that actually is able to accommodate multiple languages and different cultures. And so in cities like New York, you know, even the biggest home care company in New York doesn't train in, in Spanish, for example. Which is not, that is not to say they're not unusual. I don't mean to pick on them. They're, uh-huh. they're our friends. But uh-huh. um, I mean, and, and, and they don't for a lot of reasons that would make sense if you heard them talk about it. But, you know, mm-hmm. and it's in part because of the way the system is set up and what they would have to go through in order to do it. Hmm. And clients want someone who's from their culture speaks their language. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not even just about the workforce. It's about you know, what is the definition of quality care. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so tough. I mean, again, I'm thinking about we've gone through a, a, a few caregivers who just can't speak English and oh we want them so badly to stay but if you can't communicate communication is so important and then what if something happens to my mom and they can't communicate it's like why why are you sending me this person you know it's tough it is tough. It is tough. And it's, and it's bigger than just the long-term care system that, that you know, is, that's about, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, if an agency had, you know, a culturally competent person, you know, supporting their workers, then that would be less scary, right? Because that person could call their agency right. and communicate. You know, right. If it's a bilingual person, then you're fine, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of systemic look that I think is going to have to happen. Are some states doing a better job of this than others? I think it's more about the large urban areas. So here in New York City, for example, it's it's basically borough specific. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and that's based on folks that have you know where folks have settled in the city. And so uh, when cooperative home care was started, which is our uh, affiliate of ours, they had took care of and employed largely African American women. Today, it's basically Latina women. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's 98% person people of color, but it's it sort of matches the demographics of the clients that they're taking care of mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. the borough. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's true in the other boroughs as well. And so there's varying degrees of training in different languages. Um, it's largely training where there's been sort of advancement in recognizing the cultural competency. We beyond that, there aren't a lot of examples. And again, that's true in other states as well. In, mm-hmm. in, it's mostly in the cities. Mostly in the cities. Tell us about PHI's 60 Caregiver Issues Initiative. So the the 60 Caregiver Issues campaign is a is a two-year national campaign in which we're going to identify sort of 60 policy and practice issues um, that really all sort of speak to this growing shortage of direct care workers. There are the myriad of issues, but but again, they are contributing for sure to this shortage. So the the issues will be you know very similar to what we were talking about in terms of in the in the federal report, everything from improving wages and benefits to creating advanced roles and better training opportunities to reconfiguring how we sort of finance and structure the the long term care system. All of this will hopefully do a couple of things that'll raise awareness, mm-hmm. uh, but also serve uh, on the sort of strong research. And you mentioned. Um, PHI's website and specifically the state data center, you know, we will use that strong research base to recommend solutions to improve the quality of jobs and the the quality of care. Mm -hmm. So every two weeks we will be releasing, approximately every two weeks, we will be releasing a new issue in in varying forms, uh, everything from issue briefs to memes to other periodicals. Mm -hmm. Jody, I want to give you an opportunity to offer any last thoughts for our listeners, any takeaways that you'd like folks to know about your organization? I guess I would say I want to circle back, if you don't mind, to sure. um, the the infrastructure question. I think there are two other things that are sort of high on my mind as we think about this, this infrastructure question, and, and in this case, particularly in rural areas. Um, rural I areas. Mean, I think there's, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's efficacy in both. But, but 
thinking about different models of care, and there are a couple of states where this is happening, thinking about, say, individualized apartments that folks are living in, but that an agency provides home care workers to a building and Uh provide care to people in the building who need care and potentially have, say, one of these I was mentioning earlier, senior aides, sort of an upskilled home care worker who provides support to the workers in that building. Mm -hmm. It allows for potentially a different ratio to address the shortage. You could have one person working with two clients or more. It really does depend on the level of support that's needed. So that's something I think, you know, having a demonstration project that was fully funded and had a focus on research would be ideal. I think that we have to think about more broadly, we just have to think about different models of care. And then I think the role of technology uh, is, it's a very popular topic right now. And yeah. It's often talked about in two ways. One, either in these new tech startups mm-hmm. who are working to match clients and workers, or in full-on telehealth, telemedicine. Right. Kind of. And I think, I do not think technology is the panacea. Mm-hmm. I want to be really clear about that. but. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's a role it can play, and we have some experience with that. Um, we instituted a, a technology intervention and program here in New York um, using senior aides, and it was largely a communication tool for the direct care worker to be in direct contact with clinical staff at the home care agency. Interesting. Yeah. Throughout the day sort of thing? or. Yes. So they would they would basically, a home care worker would uh, answer a series of questions. So it, they, we used it with clients who came out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And in the first 30 days uh, they were out of the hospital, this, this tablet was put into their home. It was a phone-enabled tablet. So they could text, they could take a picture and send it, they could call. But they also had a program in which they answered a series of questions every shift. And hmm. you know, seven or so, seven or ten of the questions were sort of, you know, standard for everyone, and then there were a handful that were customized depending on what the client was in the hospital for. Mm-hmm. And what we saw was a whole range of successes. You know, the goal was to reduce unnecessary emergency room visits mm-hmm. or rehospitalization, uh, and that absolutely happened. But we also saw the increased communication stayed, so the direct care worker was more likely to get in touch with the clinical manager or get in touch with the senior aide after the device was out of the home than hmm. they were before. And we also saw that after answering those series of questions for 30 days, when the tablet came out, and they weren't answering them anymore. They still were observing the same things and reporting them. Oh, wow. And I think in thinking about in rural areas, um, there's also, I think, potentially a benefit for technology to play for a client to be connected to the home care agency as well. So say a client gets, you know, 16 hours of care a week, in the remaining hours where there isn't a family caregiver, you know, it could be a communication tool as well. Mm -hmm. So in the instance you described earlier, you partnered with a hospital no, a managed care company. Oh, okay. So we, uh, the managed care company and three home care agencies that the managed care company contracted with. Mm-hmm. Jody, tell us where listeners can find out more about the work of PHI. Sure, at www.phinational.org. Great. Jody M. Sturgeon, she's the president of PHI, the Paraprofessional Healthcare Institute. Thank you so much for being on the show, and keep up the great work. It's fascinating. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review. Rate us. The AgeWise podcast is distributed nationally on the Speak Up Talk radio network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.